Dear Father, we do thank you for this uh, wonderful demonstration of your faithfulness. We see how you orchestrate uh, the people and the times to bring about your will and uh, to bring about your covenant faithfulness, your promises. We do thank you for your hand in these episodes where we have people who are less than perfect, guided by a perfect God. And uh, we pray that we would also learn from these uh, from these narratives in the Old Testament, how we can also faithfully serve you, who is perfectly faithful to us. We do praise you in all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. I think i got to find a longer passage for Paul to read. Maybe next time I'll have him read all 67 verses in the chapter. No? Okay. Well, let's start with the... Uh, uh, the main point, and this is a few more bullet points than we're used to. I broke it down into some smaller ideas here. Uh, but as we go through this passage, we, we want to watch the steps that this servant takes and what order he takes them in. The servant demonstrates joyful faith and, or joyfulness, faith and faithfulness. He goes about his service prayerfully. Whatever he does, he's preceding it with prayer. The servant does not fulfill God's promises for him, but waits on God to work, depending on him at every turn. The servant is patient, observant, and not too quick to call something divinely orchestrated. He does not assign his whims and his fancies to God in order to justify them, but waits for God's will to be revealed. He responds to the truth of God's word with worship. Now, the second to last point is one I'm, I'm just going to put forward here at the beginning so we can watch it as we go through. Uh, we have a tendency sometimes to really like something or really want something to be, and so we find any possible thing to say, this is a sign that God wants me to do this, when really it's just what you really want to do. And if the coffee was cold in the morning, that was a sign. If the coffee was hot in the morning, that would have been a sign. But that's not what this servant does. In fact, we see him in a conversation with God beforehand, uh, deciding upon a sign. But then also we see God taking that sign, taking the reign of that signs and driving it even further. Uh, and the servant is astonished by it and it brings him to worship. And that's the same thing that should happen for us is as we are seeking God's will and not our own will, we let God do the driving. A reminder of where we're at here. We're about to switch into a, another Toledot. If you remember the Toledots from the beginning of our Genesis study, there's 11 different sections in Genesis, and they're all marked out by this is the generation of, etc., etc. We're coming to a, the end of the longest Toledot, the longest generation, which is the Toledot of Terah, and it's going to switch over to the Toledot of Abraham, dealing with Abraham's descendants. But as we come to the end, there's a big climax, and that climax is chapter 24. Chapter 24 has the same story repeated three times, uh, four sections easily to, to get through. It's the longest book in, or the longest chapter in Genesis, and one of the longest chapters in the entire Bible. And it does draw to a climax through repetition and through narrative this faithfulness of God in bringing about his covenant promises to Abraham. And so we have our 
message today, which is the servant of Abraham meeting Rebekah. Remember, there are four different conversations that occur uh, with four different sets of people. Last time we saw a man-to-man conversation in Canaan where Abraham is commissioning his servant to go out and find a wife for his son. The servant very joyfully accepts, and as we watch him going through all these conversations, everybody he meets, he wants to tell them about his master and tell them about how faithful God is to his master. He is just excited to serve, and he is thoughtful about his service as well. Well, now we have him in Mesopotamia, or in the Mesopotamian region, and this man, the servant, is now speaking to a woman. We get to know who the woman is right off the bat. The narrator, or the uh, the writer, Moses, is not going to save any, any uh, cliffhangers for us. He's going to tell us well in advance, which if you've ever read a fiction novel, this is not the way you write fiction. You, you lead them on, you drag them on, and then finally you give the big reveal. Moses is not a fiction writer. Moses is a historical writer. But he does so with narrative intrigue. And so we see him showing us right off the bat God's faithfulness so that as we're watching this episode with the servant and God is revealing this faithfulness to this servant, we are already in the know and we get to watch this realization come upon the servant. And so we'll take this in three different sections. 18 verses is kind of a lot, so we're not going to be able to really dig in on all the verses, but we do want to get the overall flow of what's happening here and why is it so important. And so we'll see the importance of prayer in this situation, the importance of the provisions that were exchanged between the two, and finally, the importance of a praising or a worshipful response to God's faithfulness. We start with the preparations that the servant did before leaving uh, Canaan. The servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand. Now, these are what we would call partitives. That doesn't really matter, but just to give it a category so we can talk about it, 10 camels from the camels means he has other camels too. He is not expending Abraham's wealth in taking these camels and taking these riches up. But once we get up into Mesopotamia, we see just how lavish the riches are. Now, we can imagine these 10 camels as probably a fraction of what Abraham actually possessed. And so this variety of good things is probably a fraction of what his master, or yeah, of what his master Abraham sent with him. We're going to see him, not frivolously, but not as part of the bridal gift, give away $10,000 worth of gold. And this is still but a fraction of what he brought with him as the payment to Nahor, for, or the payment to uh, Bethuel, rather, for his daughter. So this servant is preparing ahead of time. We remember back in chapter 22, Abraham uh, studiously preparing for the venture that God had called him out on. And so we see this characteristic in the people of God, the people who are drawn into relationship with him, of preparing to make sure that there's nothing going to stand in the way or hinder what God is doing um, by our lack of faithfulness. Now, in the narrative, Moses very quickly, in half a verse, skips 450 miles worth of story. We don't get to hear anything about him traveling through Canaan up north or 
traveling through what is now Lebanon and getting into Syria. But when we meet him, it says he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now, Mesopotamia is not a good translation here. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Aram Naharaim, and this literally just means Aram of two rivers. Aram is in the Mesopotamian region, but when we talk about Mesopotamia, it's that whole fertile crescent all the way from the Gulf there up into Turkey. Haran is at the very north end on the edge of Mesopotamia, sometimes not even considered Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a Greek word which means between rivers. And so when in the Hebrew they see Aram of two rivers, they just think, okay, that's what we think of as between two rivers, Mesopotamia. But it's not the normal way the Hebrews say Mesopotamia. They say between the two great rivers. This is probably speaking of the Euphrates River and the Haber River, which is up in Haran. And so it's just a smaller location, uh, and it's just south of Haran, this little city called Nahor. When they get to Nahor, or when he gets to Nahor, he made the camels to kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening, the time when women go out to draw the water. Moses is very carefully setting the stage here for us so that we see all the detailed preparations and setup, because once we get it set up, he's just going to fly through the rest of the story. He's outside the city. He has not gone into it. And so Rebecca is going to have to come out to him. He's not going into the city and trying to find a girl or to find the prettiest girl or the best one or maybe the one who's highest up in the city economics, but rather he's outside the city waiting for this girl to come out. Eventually, he's going to call her out of her land altogether. And so uh, it's kind of a nice parallel there. But he waits by a well of water and it's getting towards evening. Now, you might remember the woman at the well in the gospel period and say, wait, don't women go get water in the middle of the day, because that's when she was there. Uh, that woman was a social outcast, and so she had to go in the heat of the day. This was the normal time that women go out to get water. It was in the evening, after the heat of the, heat of the day, when the evening cool is coming in. Why? Because this is a very arduous task. Not only are you walking through arid land, but you're carrying a heavy jar of water uh, usually about five to seven gallons of water, which if you have ever carried a five-gallon jug of water, it's not light. Now add the clay to that that these pots are in, and this is a busy and heavy task. Well, the servant is going to use this uh, as a sign that he's going to ask God to have Rebecca use this task that she's doing to demonstrate that sign. So he says, O Lord, using God's covenant name, the God of my master Abraham. You see, he is the servant's God too. He is the servant's Elohim. He is the almighty God, sovereign over all of creation. But the servant recognizes that his relationship to God in the covenant sense comes through Abraham. And so he is elevating this covenant relationship because he is going to plead with God on the basis of a covenant that belongs to Abraham, not to him. Notice this as well back in Genesis 17, 7 through 8, the second reconfirmation of the covenant. 
He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God has drawn close to Abraham and to his descendants. He has pulled them out for a purpose, and he has guaranteed them land, seed, and blessing. And here the servant is procuring the next generation of the seed line, and he is pleading with God on the basis of God's covenant promise with Abraham to fulfill this promise. Now before we move on and go back to our servant, um, I've been toying with something and it seems to work very well in the covenant structure in Genesis. I know I was telling Mark about it, I was very excited on Wednesday. We've got these four reiterations of the Abrahamic covenant. We've studied them all now in the last couple of months, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, chapter 17, and chapters 22. In the first one, we uh, kind of laboriously demonstrated that it is not a covenant yet, it's just a promise at this point. Now God's promises, he's faithful to them, but he hasn't yet brought Israel into a covenant with himself. That covenant is going to be significant and important through the rest of the generations. And so that promise stands out as the preamble. And then he goes in and ratifies the covenant in chapter 15 with the sacrifice that Abraham presents and then the smoking pot and the firing torch walk through alone. Well, and then we have the sign of the covenant, chapter 17, God having Abraham put in the flesh of every continuing generation the sign, the visible rem reminder that God is faithful to his covenant. And then we have the final confirmation of this covenant when Abraham brings his son to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him and God presents a substitute instead. Now in the initial promise, Genesis 12, we saw the land, the seed, and the blessing. And we've been tracing each one and how they relate to each one. But each one of these reconfirmations also emphasizes one of these aspects over the others. And in Genesis 15, we see Abraham approaching God, asking about the seed promise, and then God, out of the blue, redirects it to the land promise. Abraham comes up to him and he says, how do I know that I am going to receive this reward? Because I'm childless. You haven't given me a child. And God kind of rather quickly says, look at the stars. If you can count them, you can count the kids that you're going to have. Abraham believes him. It's counted to him as righteousness. That's in verse 6. And then for the next 12 or 13 verses, God goes on to talk about the land, giving specific uh, borders to that land, specific timing when they're going to go out and come in back into that land, and how they're going to come back in blessed. This is emphasizing the land aspect of the covenant. In chapter 17, it's all about the descendants and the sign that's going to be cut into the flesh of every single descendant afterwards. This is also where God announces that not just nation, but nations and kings are going to come from Abraham. This is emphasizing the seed aspect of the covenant. And then in the confirmation in Mount Moriah, this is emphasizing the blessing aspect of the covenant. In fact, this is the one where blessing is brought up the most after Genesis 12. 
Now, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, it's a, it's a wide trunk with three big branches, land, seed, and blessing. And each one gets further amplified in its own covenant as God is bringing about the fulfillment of that covenant. And they're fulfilled in order too. The focus of the entire Pentateuch is on the land covenant, bringing Israel into their land, establishing the borders, and bringing Joshua to the land where they can begin to conquer and settle into the land. This is the major thrust of the Pentateuch. So this is for the expansion and development of the land aspect. In the Abrahamic covenant, God gives Israel unconditional ownership of the land and conditional enjoyment of it. He conditions their use of it because they are not yet perfected. And this conditional use is the Mosaic covenant, most closely related to the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. They get to use it as long as they are faithful to that Mosaic covenant. The Davidic covenant is the, re, uh, or is the uh, amplification of the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. This develops the seed, it narrows the kingly line to David's dynasty, and then it promises four eternal things, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal descendant. That is one individual who will reign forever into eternity. And then the new covenant is amplified or amplifies the blessing aspect. It replaces the Mosaic covenant. Now notice that in all these periods of the Old Testament, we're having various aspects of this Abrahamic covenant brought into more close, closer focus. So when we get into the prophetic books, especially after Israel has been exiled, from their land because they have been unfaithful to the land promises. God promises that he will make them faithful. He will draw them into a new covenant, a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant, one that not just condemns, but instead gives them righteousness, gives them faithfulness. And this was amplified, we see, in the initial promises to Abraham on Mount Moriah, where he provides the substitute sacrifice that would ratify in its type the new covenant, Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as we go through all of these covenants and we see them being depended on and trusted in the, uh, in the Genesis accounts, we can see what aspects of these covenants are they leaning on. And here in this uh, recounting in Genesis 24 of the servant going out to get Rebecca, interestingly enough, he is leaning always on Genesis 17, the one that focuses on the seed aspect of the promise, the one that focuses on the descendants to come. And so this servant understands that not only is he drawn in at that point to the covenant, because the covenant in Genesis 17 also says to circumcise all of the servants who have come under this household, but he is going out in search of the next matriarch that God has planned and prepared to fulfill this covenant to Abraham. These branches grow through all of scripture and really you can say scripture is the story of how God fulfills these covenants. This covenant is the bones, the spine that goes through all of scripture. And in order to understand it, we have to understand these covenants. So this servant on the basis of this Abrahamic covenant with the emphasis on the seed blessing or the seed promise says, please grant me success today. 
Notice he's not saying tomorrow. He's not saying next week. He is being very specific. I don't want to go another day without a fulfillment to this promise. I'm here at the city I was told to go to, in the land I was told to go to, and it's getting towards dark. Lord, come and fill this, fulfill this today. And he connects these ideas, show, show, ideas, show loving kindness to my master, Abraham. This is not necessarily asking that God go above and beyond and do more for Abraham than he already has. Loving kindness isn't excessive generosity, but rather it is the response that God should have to Abraham. God has bound himself to Abraham in a covenant, and for God's integrity, he must have loving kindness to my master, Abraham. Loving kindness is just not always the best English word to uh, put in the place of hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word, and it's used in the context of reliable covenant faithfulness. To demonstrate your love, to demonstrate your kindness by not failing to do what you have said you would do. This servant is calling God to fulfill his covenant on the basis of God's integrity towards Abraham. We can see this used in the same way in Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, with the additional aspect of the Noahic covenant. He parallels the two, which are also paralleled in Genesis. He says, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So if we remember going through Genesis 9 and the Noahic covenant, showing that God made a covenant with Noah, promising that he would not destroy this earth again until he had fulfilled all that he had planned in this age. And so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains will be removed and the hills may shake. But my loving kindness, my said, my reliable covenant faithfulness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God elevates the Abrahamic covenant over and against the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is made with all of creation, not just the people on it, but the creatures on it too. And the promise is this world will remain until God has fulfilled all of his promises. And this is the big promise he has to fulfill, this promise to Abraham. Noahic covenant was universal. God will preserve creation while he works to rescue man. The Abrahamic covenant God will use Abraham's line to restore creation. God is going to be faithful to his covenant. He will not fail. And the servant knows that. And so in his prayer, he is basing it on the known promises of God. He's not making something up of, this would be nice, I would kind of like this, and you kind of like me, so I expect that you'll do this for me. No, it's God in your integrity based on what you have promised. Do not fail in what you have said you will do. And so he says to God then in his prayer, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. He sees multiple women coming out. And at this point, he's probably thinking like, how do I choose? How do I know which one? He says, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink. 
This would be customary. A, a, a stranger might do this, and the normal thing to do would be to offer him a drink. But a very not normal thing to do would be to off, also offer to feed all of his camels and to give them water as well. And so he says, if she answers not, just please let down your jar so that I may drink. Or if she says drink and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now, there's some unintentional comedy here, too, I think. Um, it's towards dark. He just arrived from a long trip and he's looking at all these camels. He's tired and says, let's use this as a sign. God, could you have her feed my animals? Uh, I don't think that's actually what's going on here, but it made me laugh. I should ask for signs like this. God, let it be a sign. Have somebody else do my studying for me. May she be the one whom you have appointed. Now, he hasn't just picked any random sign, but one that also demonstrates an attitude of service. One that demonstrates the kind of generosity that God himself demonstrates towards Abraham. Now, not to say that Rebecca is better than Abraham and Sarah and anybody else, but Abraham and Sarah, we see a lot of problems that they're going through. We see them growing and learning slowly. Rebecca, we're not really shown many problems that go on in her life. She's a little devious with, uh, with Jacob later on. But by and large, we see a servant's attitude. We see a willingness to trust, to follow, to serve. And the servant, I think, out of desire to serve his master and to bring back simply the best girl in this entire village, chose a sign that would be above and beyond demonstrating a good person. And he wants this one for Isaac. Whoever is this kind of person, this kind of generous, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. So we see the servant actually has a benevolent desire for the goodness of his people, his master. Then he says, by this I will know. With this sign, I will have confidence that you have shown loving kindness to my master, that you have shown reliable covenant faithfulness to my master. Moving into the next section, this is where Moses jumps the gun and tells us exactly who Rebecca is before we even meet her. Before he, the servant, had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. In other words, God was already in the process of fulfilling or answering his prayer before he even finished. This reminds me of a section in Daniel where Daniel starts to pray and we see that the angel was already on his way to give Daniel the answer before he finished his prayer. God knows what we're going to pray, but also keep in mind, a prayer that gets answered is prayed in God's will. It's already God's will for this servant to encounter Rebecca. God's already bringing Rebecca out to meet him. And now the servant knows how he's going to know that Rebecca is truly the one appointed by God. We also get a note about Rebecca's parentage. She's going to repeat this herself later on, but it's important to note how she identifies herself. She was born to Bethuel, 
who was the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. We get a lot of information just from these three uh, points on the chart. Bethuel, Milcah, Nahor, excuse me, and Abraham's brother. This is the very complicated chart of Abraham's family tree, or specifically Terah's family tree. And you see down there in the left-hand corner, Rebecca. Rebecca is also in the kingly line going right down the center because she is going to accept this offer of marriage and go to the land of Canaan, be married to Isaac, and become the mother of Jacob and Esau. But we see that she is also the daughter of Bethuel, the sister of Laban. Laban's going to be important in next week's message. And Bethuel was one of the sons of Milcah and Nahor, not Nahor's concubine, Ruma, but Milcah. Now, Rebecca and Sarah share something in common as well. Notice that the servant has relied entirely on God to find Rebecca, that God has brought Rebecca out to meet him. God chose this girl. And she has something in common with Sarah, because Sarah was barren. She had no child. And in Genesis 25, 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Now that's going to be very interesting to us, especially since we see in verse 16 that when he saw her, his assessment of her is she's beautiful. She's a virgin, which doesn't mean that she's pure in that sense. It means that she is of marriable age. But in the next verse, we see very clearly that it also meant she had had no opportunity to become pregnant either. There is no way of knowing at this point that Rebecca is barren. Sarah, when we meet her, we already know. But God has orchestrated the line of Jacob, leading to Jacob, to have two barren women as the immediate matriarchs. Not only that, but God has kept it in the family, you might say. Milcah is a unique wife in the sense that she is also a niece. She was Nahor's niece, his brother Haran's daughter. Sarah, the same thing. She was the sister of Abraham. Terah had four kids that we know of. Sarah and Abraham were two of them. This entire family is kept within the family line of Terah. She didn't come from Ruma, the concubine, not just because this concubine was uh, apparently not as, as much a wife, not having the same relationship to the family, but also Milka was intrinsically part of Terah's line. And remember what God is doing with Israel. He is pulling out a nation to be a priestly nation, a representative nation, not representative merely of the nations to God, but representative of God to the nations. In fact, that is a greater emphasis for Israel. Israel much more represents God to the world than it does representing the world to God. It was supposed to be a nation which would be a light on the hill, a beacon that the nations of the world would flock to Israel to learn about the one true God. And so he is not pulling from various nations to, to make a super nation here. He is pulling from nothing, from the weakest, 
he is pulling from two barren women in two generations of this line to produce a nation that simply could not under any circumstances exist without God's miraculous intervention. The text does also mention her beauty. It mentions her, uh, her being a virgin and that no man had had relations with her. Now this word for virgin is betula in the Hebrew. This is why when we get to passages in the New Testament talking about Mary as a virgin, there is debate whether or not she was actually a virgin in the sense that we think of it. Because in the Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily mean that. We see, for example, in Joel 1.8, Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The issue here wasn't that she had not had time to consummate her marriage with her husband, but that she was left a widow at a young age. A virgin was a woman at the age of about 12 to 20, 12 to 25. After that, you're simply just a woman, still marryable but the age of marriage was much younger there. A better translation for my, this might be, she was beautiful and young and that no man had had relations with her. Now we get to see something about her character as well. These are the first verbs we see her doing out of 11 verbs, and this is uh, more verbs than we see most people doing in any of these biblical narratives. Uh, the servant here also does a lot of things. But we see Rebecca as a very active young woman. She went down to the spring. She filled her jar. She came up. And then the servant ran to meet her. And he said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she responds, as would be expected, drink, my lord. And then she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now notice a couple words are popping up here all over the place that we have seen in similar density back in Genesis 18. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender choice calf and gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it and took curds and milk and a calf which he had prepared and placed it for them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. We see Abraham acting as a servant to the angel of the Lord who came with two other angels to visit him uh, in Hebron. Acting as a servant and knowing that he served someone greater than him, he did everything expediently. He hurried, he ran quickly, he ran. And this is what the servant and Rebecca are doing here as well. No time is wasted in all of these efforts. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, when she finished giving this drink of water to the servant, she said, I will also, or I will draw also for your camels. Notice there is no prompting here. The servant's not trying to fulfill this for God. We don't get anything in the text of him staring longingly here with a hint of like anything else you want to say. No, he's accepting the drink and then she is offering. I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Now, this is emphasized twice. The next verse also, she drew for all his camels. Now, 10 camels, which can each carry about 20 to 50 gallons of water. Uh, so think 10 
were four to 10 50 gallon drums worth of water that Rebecca has just offered to bring up. And she's going to bring this up until the camels are fully watered. And notice as well this subtle nuance in the text. She's not walking over to the river, she's going down. She's filling her jar and then she's coming back up. This river is down at least a small hill. So she's walking up and down a hill to the river with a five to seven gallon jar bringing water for these camels. I'm guessing 30 to 50 trips up and down that hill to get enough water to even quench the thirst of these camels. And she's from a nomadic era. She knows what it takes to feed this many uh, camels and she offers to do it. And then she does it and she does it quickly. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, and this is going to make sense to us, well, some of it's going to make sense to us, the man was gazing at her in silence. Now I would probably also be staring, standing there dumbfounded that somebody just offered to bring up 50-some uh, runs of water for me without being asked and having no obligation towards me. What I don't really get is why he's doing this without helping, other than the fact that he is doing this to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. He's not jumping in because he knows he's not just watching the benevolence of a stranger, but he's watching God at work. Now, oddly enough, we see him, and as he's watching her do this, exactly as he had told God that would be the sign, we don't have him saying right from the beginning, ah, that's it, this is the one. He's sitting there and watching, and he's waiting. And he's not too quick to say, this is the one, you can stop, that's okay, let's go. No. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing half a shekel, and two bra bracelets for his wrists, weighing ten shekels in gold. Now everything that he had brought with him was for the purpose of giving to the family of whichever woman God had chosen as a bridal present. And he's taking from those, and he's paying this woman. This isn't a payment per se, it's a gift, but this is not a bridal gift here. This is a thanks for her generosity. And it's about $10,000 worth of gold, just shy of that. It's about four and a half ounces. He's not assuming yet at this point that she is the bride. He's recognized the generosity of a stranger, but he is going to probe a bit more. Why? Because it wasn't just his test that he was responsible for, uh, for having, for uh, fulfilling correctly, but also Abraham's requirement. God told him, go up there and get somebody from my family. And so he asks her, whose daughter are you? He's still got more things to test. He says, also, please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And now this he hadn't prepared ahead of time with God. This wasn't something where he said, any time I ask for something, have her give me a hundred times more than I've asked for. And I think this is kind of what shocks the servant. And we see it resulting in immediate praise where we see him dropping down to his knees and worshiping. 
Well, she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. At this time, his spine's probably tingling, really realizing she's the right line. Oops. Don't quite need that. Then she said, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. He asked for a place to stay, just like he had asked for a drink, and just like she'd offered without being asked to feed all of it or to give drink to all of his camels, here she's offering to feed all his camels too. And what's his response? The man bowed low. We've seen this bowed low before a couple of times, and we've gone into some detail about what exactly does it mean. It essentially means he hit the floor with his nose to the ground, and he's worshiping the Lord. He saw here that God went above and beyond to demonstrate this sign, to make it abundantly clear to him that this is the woman that in his will he has chosen for Isaac. And his first response in his praise is to recognize the Lord in his character. Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of my master Abraham, recognizing the covenant, who has not forsaken his loving kindness, is his said. And then he adds this element that we haven't seen yet in his statements, the truth, or his truth towards my master. Worship is the appropriate response to truth. And this servant has seen a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Remember, he promised, Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. God guided him. God was faithful to him, and he was faithful to Abraham. The servant recognizes you're a God who tells the truth. Now they're in Haran, or just south of Haran in Nahor, in a culture that worships the moon god, a god who doesn't tell the truth because he doesn't speak, who doesn't answer prayers because he doesn't think. This is a useless god. And the servant holds up against this God or these gods of the culture, Abraham's God, the one true God. This is a God who keeps his promises. This is a God who leads and guides. This is a God who is holy, a God who cares about his people, a God who makes promises with no requirements, a God who makes promises with requirements, a God who is intimately related to the people, who has promised to restore fellowship. And when we see these kinds of characteristics in God, as we read through scripture, as we read these narratives, as we read the epistles, as we see God's love for man at the cross, our response too should be praise. We should start everything with prayer and we should end everything with praise. He draws himself into this as well. He recognizes God's faithfulness towards Abraham, his own master, but then God's guidance to him himself so that he could be successful in the task that his master had given him because his master's task was also in the will of God. 
This is simply one of the happiest characters in all of Scripture, abundantly joyful and excited about the God whom he serves. And we see that Rebecca is equally as excited. And this is a very good reason why in Genesis 24, the story is repeated again and again and again. Because when God does something amazing, we want to talk about it. When God does something amazing, we want to tell everybody we meet. And it doesn't matter how long ago it happened. Amazing is amazing. Faithful is faithful. God's power is God's power. And when we see it, we want to tell everybody. How much more the cross. God's greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen, that the universe could even comprehend. When we see that promise fulfilled, all of the covenants drawn together in a single man. Can I switch slides this easily? No, I can't. All of God's promises tied together in a single man, in Jesus Christ, ratifying the new covenant, giving to mankind redemption, the promise of resurrection, righteousness, everything mankind needs. This is something that we want to share with everyone. And so to finish up here, the servant demonstrates joyfulness, faith, simple trust, and faithfulness. The servant goes about his service prayerfully. The servant does not fulfill God's promises for him, but he waits on God to do the work, depending on him at every turn. The servant is patient, observant, and not too quick to call something divinely orchestrated. He does not assign his whims and fancies to God in order to justify them, but he waits for God's will to be revealed. In other words, the servant didn't pick the girl. God picked the girl and made it abundantly clear to the servant that this was his will. And then the servant responds to the truth of God's words with worship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your wonderful and reliable faithfulness. We thank you that in all of your promises we can trust you. So we pray that as we read scripture, we would come to understand what you have promised, that we not try to make up promises, things that we just want and things that we desire to have, but that our desires would align with yours. That when we pray, we would pray in your will because we know your will because we have spent time with you in your word and in prayer and in praise. And so we do pray this morning as we uh, move to our next uh, little bit of praise that we would keep this in mind, that we are praising you for who you are. We are praising you for your character. We are praising you for your faithfulness. We are praising you for your son in all things. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.